living in like the the wilderness, <laughs> like living in farm town. But I don't know if I could ever move back. Like I want to sometimes, but sometimes I don't because I've been living in the city for quite some time. But as a kid, I thought that cities were really scary places. You know, places where you could get snatched off the sidewalk and like shoved into somebody's van or places where it's hard to find like grass and trees. There's like so much concrete and gum on the ground. I have stepped in, like when I first went to the big city as a kid, I stepped in gum in my new shoes and I felt really sad about it. And I was like, this place sucks. I hate it here. Uh, and I thought cities were places that smells like Topeka's Frito-Lay oil discarding pit. It's really bad. It's super bad. But that's what Topeka smells like. And Frito-Lay gets fined every year instead of cleaning it up because it's cheaper to pay the fine than it is to, like, clean the thing. So it smells bad. And it's also more expensive, which I now know as an adult. I did not know that as a child, thankfully. When I moved to college, I went to Oklahoma City. And I was, like, shocked because it's bright all the time. You know, the light was like coming into my window at nighttime, even though it was nighttime. And it was loud. There was like sirens and stuff. And there were no stars anywhere, just planes flying over the city. The moral of the story was that was like cities were the worst in most of my young life. And I didn't think anybody should live there because the country was just better in every way. Uh, but as an adult, I see the plus side of living in the city. It's a hub of diversity. I can walk around and hear languages and see people and eat foods from all over the world. I can be a little bit more picky about where I shop, given that I have transportation, because there are more options for me. Like, like I said, there was one gas station-esque, and it had like some groceries in it in the town I grew up in. But like you can't find specific things there. You know? So we had to drive 35 minutes to Walmart every week. It was like a whole trip, you know? And I don't have to do that here in the city. Um, so, so I thought these cities were bad, but I was like, well, maybe, maybe they're not so bad. They're really convenient in lots of ways, too. And they have more to offer than I was aware of. And the biblical story of cities kind of fits this model. Um, it works out of like being a bad thing and then finding out, oh, maybe it's not so bad. And so the first mention we have of a home for humans is, of course, the Garden of Eden. Uh, the Garden of Eden doesn't use city language because it's not quite a city. It's a garden, you know. Uh, but that is where God first says, this is a home where humans are going to live and dwell and do their eating and their sleeping and their living together. And this is my intention, is the garden city. That's my intention. Um, but we screwed up, as we all know. In a few, a few short chapters, we ruin the idea of what God's garden city, gar God's garden home looks like. So it's important to note here that language of a city is not actually used until we leave the Garden of Eden. So the language about what a city is doesn't exist throughout the creation narrative. It's only after humanity is kicked out of the garden that we start talking about cities because we start building walls. And in scripture, the word for city is just a fortified town. 
So we think of cities as like Nashville, it's huge, we have millions of people. That would not have been a thing for people then. It took us like 10,000 years to get to 1 billion people on the planet, and now we're like at eight, which is shocking. So it just would have been a town, some houses living together with a wall around it, a fortified wall. And the garden, of course, didn't have a wall. It did have a bouncer, but it did not have a wall. So we don't get that language until after we have le left Eden, because in Eden, you didn't need to protect yourself. You didn't need to protect yourself from other people or hoard your own resources and protect those from people. The creation of city walls is a symptom of our untrustworthy relationships with other human beings that happens after we've left, after we were banished from the garden. So cities protect us from people who aren't like us in scripture. And cities are always introduced and talked about in a really negative way. So this is not God's intention, right? To leave the Garden of Eden and be a part of this fortified wall that protects you from other people. That wasn't how God intended it at all. So we had uh, a while ago, I talked about snakes. It was like a long time ago, I guess. It was a while. We talked about snakes. It's still one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Uh, but we talked about how Cain is the seed of the serpent, right? Like when the fall happens, Cain decides to like Abel and becomes the embodiment of the seed of the serpent. And his brother Seth becomes the embodiment of humanity. And they're kind of like always pitted against each other. And so out of the two lineages, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, we see that one produces evil and destruction and the other one produces righteousness. So Cain in Genesis chapter four kind of creates his own city, right? He like killed Abel, he runs away, is freaked out because people are gonna kill him. And God says, oh, but I will avenge your death if somebody kills you. And if I were Cain, I'd be like, you're not going to just prevent them from killing me? You're just going to, like, avenge my death? Like, I still die. So he builds up this city, a big city with walls. Uh, he fortifies these walls to protect himself from whomever might come to kill him because he has killed other people. And so lots of bad stuff happens there, and all of that work that Cain does leads up to Noah and the flood. So all the unrighteous people who are not worthy of being saved— comes out of the city that Cain births by killing Abel and running away. But like cities aren't all bad. The city that Cain, you know, created for self-preservation purposes, that's also where music is invented and animal husbandry and metalworking. So in that little passage that you're reading in chapter four, it's kind of confusing because you're looking at the city that Cain creates and then also there's this tidbit of like, and this son created lyre playing, and this one created pipes and ironwork, and this one, like, raised sheep. And you're like, okay, that's weird. But truly, it's, it's an example for us to say, okay, cities aren't all bad, but left to their own devices, they are bad. Because Cain gave in to this monster of sin when he killed Abel, and it made him run in fear, and it made him build a wall to protect himself. And that same monster is always going to rear its head again. Fun fact, Seth and Cain, they both had kids. And all their kids, the names of those kids, have the same letters. They're just scrambled up. 
And so one of the, actually they both have a kid named Lamech, which is confusing because one of them is a really bad guy and the other one is not. But they're all scrambled up to give us the image of Cain being the anti-Adam and Seth being the Adam, the ideal. Now we're at Genesis 11. Uh, the guy named Nimrod, who's in the lineage of Cain, unfortunately, uh, leads to the great scattering in the Tower of Babel. So this warrior king guy creates this big city, puts a huge tower in the middle of it. They teach themselves a new skill of how to make bricks to make a taller structure, and we have our first biblical sky rise, which probably would not have been that tall in general, but they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to reach up into the heavens and prove their prowess, prove their power to the other cities around them. And this was a cosmic power grab, right? Humans saying, I'm going to show everyone else how big and bad I am so that I can always stay in power, my city will always be protected, and I don't have to worry about the other people outside of my city walls. But God comes in and scatters them up, scatters their language, scatters them across uh, the land, and Babylon, the empire, is like born out of this, born out of the city of Babel. And it will come back to haunt Israel the entirety of like Israel's existence. Babylon is always there, always there flexing its violence and its power and conquering the lands. And Babylon is the biblical image of a violent and murderous city. So the city is the opposite of the garden home. Ancient cities had huge walls to protect themselves and their resources, and the garden home was protected by God. And there was always enough. There was always more. Goodness flowed out of the garden like rivers. There were four legitimate rivers that flowed out of the garden, which is imagery for us. It flowed into the lands that weren't a part of the garden. And Babylon had a tower in the middle, a tower that reached way up high into the heavens, and the Garden of Life has a tree in the middle that reaches high into the heavens, but it also spreads its roots out into its land as well. God's heavenly presence touches down on earth in the image of the tree, and Babylon pulls its resources up and away. So a lot of things happen in the first chapters of Genesis. Uh, but we'll skip over to King David, because King David creates another city. King David is uh, appointed by God to lead Israel, as many of us might know. And he builds a city that will then be called Jerusalem in our passage at the very beginning. It's called the City of David. And this city becomes an image of the garden in a surrounding landscape of chaos. There's enough for everyone, and there's peace for a time. Because David soon becomes like Cain and gives into the same thing that Cain gave into when he killed Abel and gives into this inner monster and he kills Uriah in order to take Uriah's wife for himself. And so begins the tragic story of Israel. There's corruption and a whole bunch of kings. There are a few good kings in the line of David, but mostly really bad ones who are leading their city to destruction and they all are giving in to the same thing that Cain gave in when he built his city. Protection, power, and fear. So the garden city, the one that David had started, becomes a den of robbers, greed, and violence. 
And eventually, Babylon, who had grew in its own power and violence, comes in and takes out the kingdom that David had built. This is the the trap of the David-esque city. We think our city is a garden city. We think our, our church is a garden city. But we might we might be overlooking things. We think we're, our city is different from the rest. We're doing some really good things, which in a lot of ways is true, but sometimes we overlook the, the bad things that happen in our city too. David didn't really realize or confess that he had done something wrong until Nathan came up to him and told him this story about a guy who killed another guy for his like goat or sheep. And then David's like, oh yeah, that guy should be put to death. And Nathan's like, it was you. You did that. And then David's like, oh. So sometimes we don't even realize it that we've done something or let something slide under the rug or we're not seeing people. But Again, there are lots of positives to cities. Like in Nashville, did you know that the Batman building is the tallest building in Tennessee? I didn't know that. Uh, Nashville also has the largest Kurdish population in the United States. And Nashville was founded on Christmas Day. I didn't know that either. Did you know that the Predators are called the Predators because the saber-toothed cat skull was found under the First National Bank downtown? Nope. That's really cool, right? Did you know that over 140 languages are spoken in Metro Nashville schools and 30% of kids don't speak English in their home of origin? That's really cool. But there are a lot of other stats that are not as fun to look at. Like there are over 2,100 unhoused individuals housed in Nashville. 72% of Metro schools third graders are not on track to meet their literacy goals. And can you guess what the median sale price in June of last year for a single family home was? Somebody guess. 200,000? Four, four, $448,000. I know, I saw a meme earlier that was like, I'm sorry I was goofing off in third grade instead of buying a house in 2008. I feel like that, because <laughs> that was me, because I can never afford a $448,000 house as a median in Nashville. And one in seven Nashvilleans don't have access to the food that they want or that they need. It's easy to get stuck in our bubble of good, our bubble of our neighborhood or our church or our section of the city, and it's easy to overlook the problems of people who are invisible to us or people that our city makes invisible for us. And that's the same trap that David fell into. He didn't value the life of his own soldier and had little regard for the autonomy of a woman who lived in his city. And while we show David as the good king, the one after God's own heart, he still ended up guiding his city and all of the people of it in it, the people of God, along the path of Cain. So by this time, it looks really bad for the people of God, you know? Like, their cities are destroyed. The northern and southern kingdom is, like, wrecked. Babylon and Assyria have taken over. It doesn't look good. But the prophets always give us hope. They speak truth, and they have hope in their message. And they speak of a time coming in which God is going to transform the city into something new. God's going to take the people of Israel, the people of God, and make something new 
of it, where goodness and abundance flow again like the stream of the garden. And this thread of hope is what brings us to Jesus. Jerusalem at the time was ruled by King Herod, who was not a cool guy. It was pretty bad. And Jesus knew it. Jesus, from a young age, had to, like, run, you know, and flee from these oppressive rulers. And Jesus talks about the good news of the coming kingdom. He talks about a new kind of city that is coming. But he didn't go to the leaders of the city to talk about it. He took all the people that the city deemed as unimportant or not valued, and he took them up onto a hill and said, you are that city, which is confusing, right? Because all throughout the narrative of scripture, cities are bad. Cities are like Babylon. Cities are like Cain. Cities are what we have walls to protect ourselves. And this is another example of where Jesus flips the script upside down and says, the kingdom that you think is coming is, is not the, the one that you have thought all this time. I'm here to tell you about a new kind of city. And so he takes these people up on the hill in the towns of Galilee and shares the good news to these poor and important people. And he sends the rest of his ministry teaching people about how to live in the ethic of God's city, which is the opposite of the city of Cain or the city of Babylon or even Jerusalem at the time where these religious leaders were telling the people of God how to live their life, Jesus even says, it's not like that. It's different. Instead of telling his followers to keep the peace under threat of violence, he teaches them to make peace by generously sharing even with your enemies. He teaches people to extend kindness and grace and generosity to people around them even if it costs you. This is the ethic of God's city. This is the ethic of a garden city. And so Jesus calls out Jerusalem. I love it when Jesus calls out people. It's the best. And the religious leaders are really not happy that Jesus said that Jerusalem was corrupt and headed for destruction. So with their feathers ruffled, they keep the peace by ordering him to be executed. This looks like the city will never be redeemed, ever. Because we can't overcome the legacy that Cain left us. The city always does something bad. In Cain's city, you don't become a king by letting your enemy kill you. But Jesus was stronger than death and rested in the life-giving power of God to raise him from the dead. And it's with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit and a personal relationship with God that we are empowered to create pockets of garden city in our spaces. We are empowered to go out into our own Cain city and create a garden city instead. So if we do that together, we can have a teeny tiny taste of what the redemption of the city might look like the redemption of an oppressive and rebellious space where we live right here and right now. So lucky for us, the Bible doesn't end with humans building up another city, like in the Tower of Babel. That would put us back to the Tower of Babel, which is where we do not want to go. But the surprise ending of the biblical story is that God plans to bring the garden to the city. The visual for us is in Revelation, and we'll read it in just a few minutes after the message. 
It's a city full of abundance for all the nations, for all people, where God gets to join us all together, and we don't have to worry about building walls anymore. We don't have to worry about keeping ourselves away from people who don't look like us, or keeping ourselves away from people with different socioeconomic status than us. In this garden city, the river of life runs through the streets, and Jesus is on the throne. And there doesn't need to be walls because the gates never close. The words Jesus told his followers still, of course, apply to us today. And we can create our garden city in our spaces, too, while we wait for God to restore our Cain cities into the ultimate garden city. In order to create these pockets of this redeemed city, we have to seek out the well-being of our own cities which it's really easy to see something that's broken and say, well, I'm just going to go over there and make something else. Or I'm going to separate from these people I don't agree with and make something new, start fresh, you know? And that's not necessarily what Jesus asks us to do all the time. For some people, maybe. But Jesus is asking us to live in our city, in the dysfunction and the oppression and the greed, and to create something new, And of course, this means many things, and I hope it means a different thing for each one of us, because we all have our gifts and our strengths, and we all have our own spheres of influence. So the way we treat those in our cities, the poor, the marginalized, the unhoused, the hungry, the sick, the imprisoned, that's a really good way to rank how Jesus would rank us from like Garden City to Cain City. If we don't care about those people, we're probably closer to the Cain City side. If we care about the people in our midst who are marginalized, then we might inch towards the Garden City side. And that's our whole goal as we live on this earth. And we don't accidentally get to create pockets of Garden City. It's not that easy, unfortunately. You can't just accidentally speak truth to power and accidentally create a safe space for somebody who doesn't feel safe in your neighborhood. It takes effort to overcome our tendencies, to overcome this monster that has been plaguing humanity since Cain. It's still here, and we have to have effort in order to overcome that monster. So I thought that cities were always bad as a kid, but As an adult, it turns out they're not all that bad. Of course, there are things that are bad about cities, right? There are are people here that I wouldn't find in my hometown in the country. And there is something for me to do when I live here in the city. So cities are where the image of God is centralized. In Nashville, we have 700,000 image bearers of God. I want to say that one more time. In Nashville, we have 700,000 image bearers of God. Cities are where life happens for millions of people. And just like we get to experience God and be made whole in the wilderness, we can do that in the city too. All of us working together to make the Garden City a reality for us today. As we wait in anticipation for God to finish the work, that God started ever since humanity took our first steps outside of Eden. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is the image for us of the Garden City come into the Cain City. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> 